0: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where Freethought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. And this week, my interviewee is Oxford theology professor Nigel Bigger, author of the newly published HarperCollins bestseller, *Colonialism: A Moral Reckoning. In his new book, Bigger makes the case that, contrary to modern progressive dogma, the legacy of the British Empire has a lot of good mixed in with the bad. This is something that you're not supposed to say these days, of course which is why Bigger's original publisher, Bloomberry, got cold feet on this book and cancelled its publication indefinitely before HarperCollins stepped in and ushered it onto the bestseller lists. I spoke to Professor Bigger last month over Skype, and as you'll hear in some of the outtake material that I posted at the end of the credits, our interview coincided with an interesting development in British politics. So one of the problems we have with this issue, (laughs) among a variety of problems, is, is the problem of definition. When you talk about colonialism or imperialism, defined broadly, it effectively sweeps up almost all of history. The Roman Empire began with the imperialist march of what we now call Romans throughout the Italian peninsula. How do we distinguish what is called colonialism now from the grand sweep of history, which is just one big litany of peoples invading each other and conquering one another?
1: So first of all, I generally prefer not to talk about colonialism or imperialism because the ism implies some kind of coherent, systematic unity that historical empires, certainly like the British, never had. So when there is talk about colonialism, particularly now, it does imply a unity and coherence and consistency that didn't actually exist. So that's, that's one of my criticisms of the of the use of the word colonialism, what distinguishes the use of the word now is this, that those using it have no interest at all in ancient empires, the Roman, the Carthaginian, the Greek, nor do they have any interest at all in non-European or, not, or non-white empires. European I use broadly to include the United States. Uh, they don't care about Arab Empire or Mughal Empire or Chinese Empire or Zulu Empire or... Comanche Empire in the southwest of the US, they only care about European empires. Why is that? It's because the target of the critics of colonialism, that's to say, European colonialism, the target is the West, and the record of the West. And that explains why this word colonialism, although, as you, as you rightly say, could refer to all manner of things, in fact, refers only to recent European and American forms of, of empire and, and colonial endeavour.
0: But even if we restrict our historical lens to the British Empire, one of the first and certainly most most vicious, some would say imperialist campaigns, was done to bring the Irish into what is now called the United Kingdom. When people talk about British imperialism, is that something they talk about?
1: So certain Irish nationalists will be very sensitive about that part of their history. Most British people don't really think about it much at all. Yes, it was a it was an early instance of colonization. The the plantations in in Ulster, the north of of the island of Ireland, and also the southwest in County Cork, by Protestants in the late 1500s, early 1600s, uh, designed to settle Ireland and and also to make it more sympathetic to the Protestant Kingdom of England, which at that time was under threat by. A rather more powerful Catholic states like like Spain. So there was a kind of geopolitical military defensive logic to planting Protestant settlers in in Ireland.
0: Sorry, so let's interrupt that justification sort of popped up after the fact. And I mean the Spanish, I think, landed troops on Ireland just once and it was a kind of pitiful campaign. This long predates the Armada and, and the threat from Habsburg, Spain, no?
1: Oh, I don't. I don't dispute that. But I, I, I mean, I think one has to put this in context. The fact of the matter is, Jonathan, that the past was, from our point of view, appallingly and dreadfully bloody. All sorts of people were brutal to each other, and I, I'm not defending unnecessary brutality. And, and to what extent brutality is unnecessary depends on the case. All war is brutal. Just going way back, what brought, broadly speaking, Englishmen to to Ireland? There weren't English, there were Anglo-Norman knights who uh, went over to, to Dublin uh, because they were hired by Irish chieftains to come and as mercenaries. And in a war got land, then the, the, their power gradually grew. The Normans did the same thing in, in Italy, and that's how they came to rule Sicily.
0: As I understand it, it's, it's sort of lost in the the mists of history. But one theory of how the Angles and the Saxons came to England was, to some extent at least, on the behest of local chieftains who were looking for more muscle. I,
1: I think you you find the same pattern all over the world because you you got lots of peoples with insecure borders being jostled by other peoples, having to ally with some people in order to fend off others, and uh, so you find the same pattern in Anglo-Saxon England among. Uh, native peoples of North America, even before Europeans arrived. So that's quite a common way in which one power begins to grow, get a foothold in the territory of of another people. It starts off in the form of an alliance. It happened, the same happened in India. The East India Company, which was there to trade, found that its environment was violent and and eventually became allies of one Indian party in order to defeat another one, and therefore, as a reward, was given, for example, sometimes even ports. But the, the motive, was, the primary motive was trade in the case of India. When we're considering these things, we do need to remember just how unstable most of the world was in the past. When borders are unstable, people are insecure, and for defensive reasons, they look for allies or they, they look for advantage.
0: I have a parochial Canadian perspective on this. In the Canadian example, I think it's a little different because when Samuel de Champlain arrived, I guess, in the early 17th century, the borders between First Nations were fairly stable. You know, around the St. Lawrence River, you had the Iroquois to the south and you had Algonquins to the north and what came to be known as the the Huron Confederacy Northwest. And Champlain had had a genius for (laughs) making himself necessary to the local First Nations as a means to get the fur trade going. But what struck me when I, I read this history is there was a certain bait and switch that went on. So I think one pattern here is that the colonized people or the people who came to be colonized understood the Europeans as arriving to set up ports, to set up trading posts, to set up miniature city-states which would operate as depots for trading, which in many cases they welcomed because the Europeans were bringing goods that they wanted. Whereas the Europeans always... On some level regarded this as a project to take land because they had a different understanding of real estate. And then they were horrified when the European presence metastasized and they started planting flags and and claiming whole swaths of land in the name of empires that were on the other side of the ocean. Is the British empire like the French empire built on this kind of lie?
1: I think you, and the description you give, of what happened in North America is probably attributing too coherent a set of motives to to the British or the Europeans. It seems to me that the reasons why Europeans crossed the Atlantic, and uh, let's remember again... You don't want to cross the Atlantic in the 1600s or 1700s unless you're very serious about something.
0: Well, at first it was about fish, and then after fish it was fur. Yeah, and then
1: it it was, you know, we all know about the the Puritans and different people crossed the Atlantic for different reasons. Of course, they they wanted to make a better life for themselves. Quite how much they intended to expand and under what conditions they they intended to expand, it would vary from, from time to time. I don't think you can say that when when Europeans pitched up in North America from the get-go, they were planning and taking over the whole place, because empires grow by increments in a, in a very ad hoc fashion, according to a variety of factors and, and opportunities that present themselves.
0: Discussions about this sort of thing always gravitate to slavery, and understandably, because it's a signature evil. And one point that you make, and I think is, is, is a fair point, is that slavery, unfortunately, it still exists in some corners of the world, It's this timeless evil and it it existed in many of the societies that were later colonized by the British. However, is it fair to say that the dictates of European colonialism and plantation capitalism in particular created a different kind of slavery? Where slaves were taken across the ocean in ships, 25% died in transit, and were put to work in dehumanizing forms of, of mass labor sugar plantations in particular, horrible kind of work, in a way that was a new kind of industrialized slavery, which was different from the kind of institutionalized forms of slavery that existed in many of these places, such as coastal Africa. For instance, Haiti, or Cap Domingue, as it was called, where you have thousands and thousands of slaves set to a sugar plantation. This is a kind of mass conscription slavery that didn't exist in traditional societies.
1: So how do you think that the pharaohs treated the people they made build their pyramids? Fair point. Or the Assyrians? If you want something that looks, as it were, massive in scale and is systematic, I think the the ancient empires of Mesopotamia and the Roman and Greek empires too, and they they didn't treat slaves particularly well there either. I mean, I, I grant you that the slavery in the West Indies in the 17th century and in the uh, American colonies uh, was often, not always, but often specially brutal and certainly more brutal than, than a lot of slavery that existed in the Arab world. As for Africa, no, you don't you don't, as far as I know, have slaves employed on a massive scale for economic purposes there, but you you have them taken in battle. You also have them in West Africa sometimes uh, sacrificed upon the deaths of their uh, of their rural their master by being buried alive. Yes, no doubt, no doubt. The plantations of the West Indies in the 1700s was different from other instances of slavery. But I I, I don't think you'd be hard put to find very brutal slavery um, um, in non-European contexts before the Europeans got into slavery in the 1400s and 1500s, 1600s.
0: Are you familiar with a document, this is from the Elizabethan period, called A Discourse Concerning Western Planting? Uh, Who who was that by? Richard Hauklut. Hacklite. I'm Sorry, how do you pronounce his last name? Hacklite, I think. He was stationed in Paris, and he was a kind of propagandist on behalf of those who wanted to explore and exploit the Americas, as we now call them. It's this point form argument for why the English should be colonizing the Americas. There's something like 20 chapters. Uh, I read it over the holidays. It's, it's absolutely fascinating because it's essentially one long argument for Queen Elizabeth to fund these expeditions. But he keeps coming back to European rivalries. The dawn of English imperialism is inseparable from the religious wars with Catholics, because every argument he makes keeps coming back to the fact, well, if we don't do it, the Spanish are going to do it. You know, if we don't claim this in the name of Protestant England, the Pope will have his grubby hands all over it. It's unclear to me, reading something like this, how much of the religious aspect of this is genuine, and how much of it is a pretext for seizing land. i again, coming back to Champlain, who I realize is French, not English, he regarded the Jesuits as a nuisance. He was all about trade. And and then the Jesuits came along, they had a lot of money, but but he and other early French explorers had, had a very mixed and often disdainful attitude toward these clerics who saw the entire mission religiously. In the case of the English, how much of the proselytizing aspect of it was genuine, and how much of it was a sort of righteous pretext.
1: Generally speaking, British colonial officials did not encourage proselytizing. I'm I'm not talking about North America, I'm talking about India, for example, because if you proselytize native peoples, that upsets them, it disturbs customs, and that provokes political unrest, which as an official you don't want. So oftentimes, British colonial officials discouraged religious proselytizing, and the East India Company refused to allow... Christian missionaries into India until the 1830s. As for motives in the Elizabethan period, so England had become Protestant. I believe that uh, Queen Elizabeth was a convinced Protestant and and some of those around her were convinced Protestants. So insofar as Catholic Spain was committed to a crusade to bring Protestant England back into the Catholic fold, there was, I think, an irreducible as it were, religious ideological element to the conflict there. But of course, religious elements get mixed up with interests in in power and material interests as well. So anyone who belonged to the English establishment would would fear Catholic rule because it would mean the loss of, of status and, and material wealth. And so religious and political and material motives get mixed up together. But I don't think you can say the religious motives were... Simply a pretext, I mean for some people, it may have been, for other people, there were real motives, so I'm not inclined to to reduce religious motives to other factors. sometimes people really believe <laughs> religious things, and that's what motivates them.
0: one of the broad form critiques of of your book and I guess arguments such as are contained in your book is that it takes a quote balance sheet approach to the legacy of colonialism. The idea here is that. Apologists for colonialism will say, well, look, the, the average lifespan of pre-colonial India or, or Canada or whatnot was very similar to the average lifespan in places like medieval Europe, roughly speaking, and, and a century or two after colonialism, people are living twice as long, uh, There's <laughs> there's railways, there's highways, there's airports, there's all this stuff. Are you sensitive to the idea that it is very difficult to just take this utilitarian balance sheet approach when, I mean, you see this in, in Every Conflict Under the Sun, the meat of human sustenance is not just in food, shelter, and clothing. It comes with pride and autonomy, and that you're living in a way that's authentic to how your forebears lived. And all those things get destroyed by colonialism.
1: So, so the irony is, Jonathan, the from from the beginning i i have never argued that you can pile up the evils of colonial rule the spread of disease the unwarranted violence the taking away of autonomy on the one hand and then pile up the good things the the railways the spread of medicine the emancipation of slaves and decide for example that the good outweigh the bad.
0: Uh, Just to be clear, this is a caricature version of your argument. Yeah,
1: but 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 no, it, it's been explained from the beginning that, that I do a balance sheet approach. Uh, I mean, they've said that my critics, and I've said from the beginning, I'm an ethicist. I'm not a utilitarian. I've I've been anti-utilitarian for a long time, so they misunderstand what I've been doing. So in the book, what I do is to say, well, you can look back at the British Empire and you can draw up a list of debits and credits. Evils and, and benefits. And I do that in the conclusion to the book. And then I say, well, you know, how much chalk is worth how much cheese? How much injustice is worth suffering in order to facilitate the spread of modern medicine, for example, or building bridges? And I say, you, you ask the question, it becomes apparent it's absurd. You can't answer it. What you can do, however, is to say, well, can you say there was something about this colonial system that was essentially evil? the paradigm of of a political system that was essentially evil would be Nazi Germany so you have at the heart of the Nazi imperial project a viciously racist and and murderous view of Jews and and Slavs and and, and others which as we saw during the during the second world war was sufficiently central that uh, the Nazis were were willing to divert significant resources from the military effort in order to slaughter Jews and others on a massive scale. So central was this to the purpose of the Nazi project. So can you say that uh, um, something similar was going on in the British Empire? And that's why lots of critics of British colonialism want to assimilate the British Empire to Nazism and to say that Herbert Kitchener's concentration camps in South Africa in the late, uh, in the early 1900s was somehow equivalent to Auschwitz, or that Cecil Rhodes was South Africa's Hitler or that Churchill wanted to perpetrate genocide during the Bengal famine of 1943. And I I consider all these charges and every one of them I find to fail. And I conclude that you cannot find anything in the British Empire that approximated Nazism. And what you can find are significant humanitarian and liberal motives and, and trends. Yes, we did slavery for 150 years then we were among the the first states in the history of the world Denmark was the first to abolish the slave trade and slavery and then to spend another 150 years suppressing it all over the world Uh, so that's the way I deal with it. I say you you can't simply balance up goods and evils but can you say that as it were there was something central to the system that was evil and I, I conclude no you can't in this case.
0: One of the evils is the the residue of colonialism that exists in a society after it gains independence or it is decolonized, so to speak. Uh, so the example in Haiti would be that the entire economy of Haiti had been turned into one large plantation system. And so Toussaint Louverture, even after he became the leader of an independent Haiti, had no choice but to force black people back onto plantations because the entire economy of the island had been geared toward that. And so even though Haiti was nominally independent, he still had to create a kind of ersatz slavery system because that's how the Europeans had geared the island's economy to a, an export-based cash crop economy. You also see this in the form of of population control. So if I could give the example of Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is an interesting example because it was colonized by the Portuguese, the Dutch, and the British. And you had a situation where, as I understand it, and I think this is sometimes a common pattern, is that one group was favored over another. So you had the Tamils being favored over the, the Sinhalese. Then the colonizers leave and... Eventually, the country is cast into this murderous paroxysm because there's this sorting out of the ethnic hierarchies that were encouraged or exacerbated by the Europeans for their own convenience. The Belgians did something like this in uh, in Rwanda. When you're doing the analysis of the legacy of the English Empire, what kind of systematic controls can you make for the horrors that unfold after the Europeans leave, given that the conditions they put in place did much to engineer those horrors.
1: So I I don't think uh, you can generalize, Jonathan. I think we have to take each case by itself. Uh, I don't know very much about the case of Haiti, but my my response to your question, my initial response is, what's so bad about a cash economy? Uh, The the same thing happened in in the British West Indian islands after the abolition of slavery in 1833. In some cases, uh, freed slaves could find patches of land to subsist But on Barbados, for example, that the only form of earning a living was working on the plantation. But in itself, it's not clear to me what's so wrong with that.
0: Hey, I love a cash economy. I mean, I think a cash economy and capitalism in general works well in conjunction with things like a thriving middle class, uh, worker protection laws, uh, labor unions, I mean, all the sort of modern checks and balances It can lead to horrific results however in a context where human beings are seen as inputs along with coal and steel and whatnot in a kind of nihilistic struggle to increase output which i think is a fair description not just what happened in haiti but you know the silver mines in latin america the the belgian congo particularly horrific example
1: no no i I agree so so i'm glad we've got to where we've got to but you'll notice that it took 200 years for us to get here so you talk about Welfare state and, and various forms of protect, worker protection. What well, we got here, uh, it wasn't there in the beginning. In terms of conditions of labour, I mean, good lord! Before the twentieth century, most forms of labour, whether we're talking about agriculture or mid-nineteenth-century industry, uh, were dreadful absolutely dreadful i'm not saying that they were necessarily equivalent to slavery whose specific form of injustice is the fact that the slave is has no rights against the whims of his master that's a that's a, a specific wrong in slavery But we in in the modern liberal world have, ever since the mid-19th century, have have begun to establish workers' rights and improve conditions, but it took time.
0: Yeah, although I I guess colonized peoples might have preferred that we worked all that out before we came to set up things like rubber plantations. Well, I'm sure they
1: would, but history doesn't work that way.
0: We'll be getting back to the Quillette podcast momentarily, but first, a quick reminder that if you're just listening to Quillette and not reading it, then you're getting an incomplete Quillette experience. Our website, quillette.com, is where Free thought lives. This week you'll find new essays by David Geary on the rise of father absence and its attendant social ills, Stephen Grant on Amy Wax and academic freedom, Robin Ashenden on the divided soul of comedian Russell Kane, Josh Allen on whether we still need a woman's prize for fiction, George Case on The Beatles, Neil Gray on Nick Cave's Lessons in Grief, and yours truly, Jonathan Kay, on the outcome of Stephen Elliott's defamation case against Moira Donegan. All of that at Quillette.com. And now, back to the Quillette podcast. A surprising number of your critics quickly go to the fact that you are a Brexit supporter, is that right? What does that have to do with your views on on 19th century India? I didn't
1: vote in favour of uh, leaving the European Union. Now it was done, I want Brexit to succeed as best it can.
0: How is this even relevant to your historical view? The
1: reason it's relevant, and some of my critics have made the connection, uh, the reason it's relevant is that some people think that uh, the vote for Brexit was motivated on the part of English voters, mainly, who uh, suffered from imperial nostalgia and wanted Britain to return to 1900 when it ruled the world by itself. In, in fact, there there is no empirical evidence to suppose that that was a major motive, or a motive at all, frankly, in what moved people to vote Brexit in 2016. Uh, but, but that's a connection. As it happens, I didn't vote for Brexit. <laughs> so it doesn't make a lot of sense in my case.
0: In your book, you quote Michael Hector, an American sociologist. Yes. Who uh, not so long ago said, quote, good alien government may be better than bad native government. Which, which sounds like a politically apocryphal thing to say in the modern context, although it's interesting, just just a week or two ago, I read this New York Times story about how Russian mercenaries have effectively taken over the Central African Republic, somewhat obscure country in Africa. The Times reporter, it was actually a great report from a very difficult place to get to, and certainly to report from, the Times reporter candidly said that there were a lot of people who were in favor of this, because as awful and corrupt as these Russian mercenaries were, they... We're better than the the dysfunctional government that they replaced, uh, or that they're working hand in glove with. One version of this argument plays out in expatriate communities, or in immigrant communities. In England, where you're talking to me from, you do have some voices, I think, within immigrant communities who who do act as apologists for, apologist is a loaded word, but who who do talk candidly about some of the benefits that come from, from English imperialism. You know, you're a white person like me. But I'm wondering how the political dynamic is now playing out within these immigrant communities, talking particularly about South Asian communities. I think maybe as recently as 20 or 30 years ago, or maybe even 10 years ago, People could have this kind of conversation with saying, well, this was a horrible part of imperialism, but this is a good part. And this is why I'm happy about this, but not so much about this. What is the climate now for that kind of discussion?
1: Two things, Jonathan. First of all, let me answer you that question directly. I'm not an expert on this, but I can tell you that whereas there are a number of folk who claim to represent what black people, Asian people, African people think, on colonialism, and it tends to be damning. The the truth is that, surprise, surprise, non-white people think a variety of things, just like white people do. So yes, there are people who don't have skin like me or you who uh, do think that British Empire did some good things. Second thing to say is that the Empire often could not have survived or even gained traction without widespread significant buy-in from native peoples. And sometimes it is true. Uh, Native peoples preferred a form of British rule to what else was available. So Titanka Roy, the Bengali-born economic historian at the London School of Economics, uh, has written that in the 1700s, many Indians preferred to hook up with the British East India Company and, and suffer British rule because it was better than what else was on offer. And by the way, you know, British rule doesn't mean that Brits simply sit up there and dictate what happens elsewhere, because it it couldn't happen that way, because the number of Brits was so tiny. It could only happen because British people and native Indians liaised and cooperated. And and the same went for, for Hong Kong in the 1950s, when you have one or two million Chinese tearing to leave mainland China, entering the British colony of Hong Kong, which was not democratic. Because it, it offered stability in the rule of law. So in certain circumstances, uh, and Michael Hector is perfectly right here, in certain circumstances, people can opt to be ruled by another people because compared to what else is in offer, it's better.
0: There is a professor of post-colonial studies at Cambridge University named Priam... Pri- Priam Bhadagopal. Okay, thank you for <laughs> sparing me the microaggression of mispronouncing your name. <laughs> I had heard of her a couple of years ago because there was this situation where she started screaming at some custodian at Cambridge, or a porter, as they're called in the English idiom, because he didn't refer to her by her preferred honorific, which which seemed to me like something out of the Victorian era, but apparently she regards herself as something of an expert on anti-oppression But in commenting on your book, or at least the controversy around it, uh, she wrote on her Medium page (laughs) that nothing gets up the nose of a patrician white establishmentarian male. So that's you, you're an establishmentarian male. Uh, Returning to the quote, more than a gobby, I don't know what that means, more than a gobby brown woman. We are, after all, supposed to sit weeping on burning pyres to be rescued by dashing colonial men in pith helmets than to spend the rest of our lives in silent gratitude with a few sexual favors thrown in if required, not happening, end quote. So, I mean, she paints a picture here. Like, I, regardless of her political views, I like good writing. And, um, I mean, I kind of, I wouldn't mind being in a pith helmet and rescuing women. I I don't know, I'd be very good at it. And uh, I don't know if Jews were allowed to do that in Victorian times. But putting this aside, do you get a lot of this stuff where you're, People put a pith helmet on you and, you know, have you traipsing through the jungle, um, rescuing women and stuff like that. Like, it just, it seems very personal, no?
1: Yes, I, I've had a lot of, of personal abuse. I mean, Priya Gopal led the charge way back in 2017 when I would published an article in the London Times saying I thought we British had confined cause for both pride and shame in our imperial past. And as a consequence of that, I was a bigot of white supremacist, according to Gopal. And I, I've seen the tweets so lots of personal stuff and there was a i I discovered a chapter devoted to me in a book by richard drayton a professor of history at king's college london in which with the first page he discovered that my my great-grandfather created a a mill in scotland that processed manure Uh, why this was on the first page except to associate me with shit i've no no idea
0: Oh, so sorry. I thought, I thought it was going to be that your great-grandfather was like a slave trader or something like that.
1: He, he tried another one. He, uh, there was a, a Victorian man of letters called Thomas Carlyle, born in Scotland, about 50 miles east of where I was born. And so Richard Brayton notes this, and Carlyle had given expression to racist views, and the logic seemed to be Carlyle was a racist – Kali was born 50 miles east of Bigger.
0: Wow, that's like six degrees of Kevin Bacon. It's like six degrees of Nigel Beggar. <laughs>
1: yeah, so there's a lot of personal abuse, and I just observe that my critics, on the whole, in my view, of course I would say this, are better at personal attack than they are at argument.
0: In defense of Gopal, it is a widely observed phenomenon that when people of any stripe, ideological stripe, think that an argument is settled and they've won... They immediately lose the capacity of rhetorical self-defense because it's like any evolutionarily learned skill, once it isn't needed, it can wither away, sort of like an appendix. I think there's a lot of people who think, look, this argument is settled. The British, their legacy is indistinguishable from the Nazis. We're not even allowed to have this discussion, so why bother putting together the arguments necessary to prosecute it? Is that the case? The argument is we shouldn't be having this argument.
1: It's not, it's not as simple as that. I think because uh, I I mean, in
0: Canada that's certainly the case. I mean in Canada, not sure I have the vocabulary to describe how outre the arguments you're making would be if they were presented, say, at a, at, a, at a seminar at a Canadian university. I, yeah. I'm not sure they'd they'd even have the yeah. words to describe how offended they were.
1: Yeah. Well, I I, I don't care how offended they are. The question is whether, whether what I say is true or not. The issue of the truth, is my point of view, is important here, and I. You know, right, right at the beginning, I'd never heard of Priyamvada Gopal before. I heard of her only when I saw a tweet in which, responding to a research project I'd begun, and after my article in the London Times saying that British had cause for both pride and shame in our imperial past, in response to that, she tweeted, Oh my God, this is serious shit. We must, block capitals, shut this down. Right. So her first impulse on encountering me and my views was... We must shut this down. Looking back five years, I just remark on, first of all, the the hint of panic. (laughs) And also that the the action was not to say, well, it's clear that this guy is crazy and we can easily show how stupid and unreasonable he's being. No, the, 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 the response has never been a rational one. It has been a repressive one. The reason for that is that she and those like her know that they don't have reason on their side. That's why I have to be shut down. Because if I if I was allowed to, to keep on uh, saying what I'm saying, I, I might publish a book, and it might attract a lot of attention, and a lot of people might think it's reasonable and be persuaded by what I have to say, which is what it, what in fact has just happened. My the book I published two weeks ago is is now in the top ten bestsellers in in the UK.
0: Your book is in the top bestsellers. The, the
1: best known tables is the London Sunday Times bestseller list. And I was told yesterday that in the Sunday coming, my book, Colonialism, is number 10. And the people who, have in the front of the book, you, you'll have seen there are 10 or so, mostly historians, some of whom are well-established, not all of them white, who use the words like reasonable and fair and balanced about what I've written. Uh, and I think a lot of people uh, in this country, I don't know about Canada, when they come across what I have to say, and no doubt I've made mistakes, Jonathan. I, I don't. I don't expect I haven't made mistakes, but I've just noticed those on on the what I regard as on the on the far thoughtless left that they, they prefer insinuation and misrepresentation and personal abuse to solid argument. I'm, I'm waiting for a solid extended argument to be published that I can respond to.
0: You know, this this takes us back to the colonial period a little bit because. Back in the time of James I, James I wouldn't bother rebutting popular sermons that were delivered on Sunday. He would just put out an edict saying you're not allowed to talk about the following (laughs) subjects. As you know, he wanted his son to marry a Spanish princess and people weren't quite happy about that. So he just told the clerics they weren't allowed to talk about it, which has a modern echo because the argument from a lot of people you see now, isn't Nigel Biggers is is wrong for the following reasons. It's you're not allowed to read this book. And if you're in a Zoom call and somebody sees your book on their bookshelf, they're going to have some answering to do. I mean, you are a professor emeritus, right? Yeah. If you were, say, an untenured active professor would you write this book? You know, Even if you felt every word of it was true, in effect, is the only reason you can write this book the fact that you don't have to worry about paying your mortgage from an untenured professorship position?
1: Pretty much, yes. I mean, certainly the, the fact that I, I was tenured and senior meant I, I was able to write the book. Although, uh, as you'll know, uh, the publisher who commissioned it then, cancelled publication.
0: And what publisher was that?
1: Uh, Bloomsbury. Okay. Fortunately, Harper Collins picked it up, and, and it, it came out last a couple of weeks ago.
0: The publisher is listed as William Collins. That's an imprint of Harper Collins, correct? Okay, so that's that's a major international publisher, correct? Huh, Okay, well,
1: interesting. Yeah. and uh, Bloomsbury. Do you want want me to go into that that story?
0: Well, I think people are interested in this sort of thing. You might remember when Woody Allen's memoirs were cancelled by, I think it was the Hachette Group. Yes. Yes, the memoirs were picked up, but they were picked up by Skyhorse Publishing, which is certainly not on the level of HarperCollins or anything like that. So I find it interesting that the book was was picked up by a major international publisher.
1: Uh, I signed a contract to write a a, a book about colonialism in uh, April 2018. I delivered the manuscript at the end of 2020. January 21, my commissioning editor writes back to me having read the manuscript. He says he was speechless with admiration for the rigor and care I'd taken, and he predicted sales of up to 20,000 copies. Three months later, I get uh, an email from the top of Bloomsbury saying that they're postponing publication indefinitely because, quote, public feeling is unfavorable.
0: And by public feeling, they mean there's four people in their own offices who are upset about it, right?
1: That's what I was told. Yeah,
0: because by the way, exactly the same thing happened with Jordan Peterson here in Canada, where (laughs) it was kind of hilarious, actually. The publisher, Penguin Random House, if I remember correctly, there was like an internal revolt, although revolt is the wrong word because that implies a sort of aggressive manifestation of feeling. This was more passive-aggressive, where people were literally bursting into tears, about how can we publish, you know, history's greatest monster. (laughs) And Penguin Random House, basically, this is a couple of years ago, it took uh, Chutzpah to do this, told them to stuff it. They published the book, made millions of dollars, obviously. So... It's interesting the way different publishers uh, take different tacks on this. J.K. Rowling's publisher obviously stuck with her. When one of your authors is is running a printing press for money, it's easy to stick by them. Although, interesting, your book is going to make money, it sounds like, if it's on the bestseller list.
1: As it happens, Jonathan, J.K. Rowling is published by Bloomsbury. (laughs)
0: Ah, so wait a second, okay, this is the, so, so J.K. Rowling, who hasn't ever actually said anything transphobic, but is often smeared as, you know, this monster who wants to destroy all the trans people, they stuck by her, but you they threw under the bus?
1: Yeah, Uh, and uh, as for the reason, um, I was told by a senior member of Bloomsbury that it was because junior colleagues in Bloomsbury protested. I should add that Bloomsbury deny that, have denied that in, in public. Uh, the, the reason they give for canceling my country is, is they say, I walked away from it, which I can tell you, and I can prove it, is untrue. <laughs> what, 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 why Bloomsbury say what they say, I, I could not possibly comment on, but it, what they say is not true.
0: Well, Nigel Bigger, thank you so much for being on the Quillette podcast. Not at
1: all, thank you. I've enjoyed the opportunity to talk,
0: Jonathan. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Quillette podcast. Quillette is where thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. Okay, that was good, and uh, sorry so many of my questions were of the parochial Canadian sort.
1: No, no, no. Yeah, you speak out of your context. I, I, I know a bit about it. At some point, if there were time, I'd, I'd love to know why you think Canada has gone the way it has, because, you know, you, you, Canadians, I and mean, I, I lived in Canada for four years, Canadians used to have a, a reputation for being sort of sane and moderate.
0: So, yeah, I mean, I, my, my view of this is that every society lives in tension with an imagined villain. So, you know, during the 16th century, Protestant England lived in tension with Catholic League and all yeah. that stuff. In Canada, our Catholic League, our Habsburgs were the Americans. Yeah. And the idea was that Canada was this beleaguered, culturally precious, but also very vulnerable, tiny in population land that was constantly in fear of American cultural hegemony. And we all had to exhibit solidarity and then what happened was the Americans did succeed in taking us over culturally, but through the back door of social media, not through Hollywood or any of that stuff, although that helped. And so about 10 or 15 years ago, the Canadian academic and activist and literary class essentially became ideologically beholden to the American dominated hashtag cultures promulgated on Twitter oh. and to a lesser extent, other social media. And so we stopped defining ourselves as being in tension with the Americans and started defining ourselves as being in tension with bad Americans, uh, Republicans, Trump in particular. And there was just this blurring between the postures of the Canadian intellectual class and the American intellectual class, and now it's one and the same. So instead of being a geographically defined tension, it's now an ideologically defined tension that, that crosses over borders. And to further complicate things, in the United States, at least you have the checks and balances that come from a actively conservative, evangelical, political class, which in Canada, we don't have. So once that flip I've just described took place, it didn't encounter any resistance. Because Canada doesn't really have any kind of conservative movement. It spread like wildfire without anything to contain it. Uh, And so that's, that's how Canada... Got no, that's way.
1: really interesting because something similar happened over here, but but in a weaker form, as you'd expect.
0: Scotland has gone in for this. I think Scotland seems to be, on some of the gender stuff, seems to be a little Well,
1: uh, the Scottish government has, but the Scottish government is, is deeply unpopular because of that.
0: Yeah. So, and something similar is happening in Canada, too. I mean, because most people in Canada aren't conservative, but they do have common sense. Yes, yeah, so
1: and Nicola Sturgeon has just resigned today, apparently.
0: Oh, she yeah. did? Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, she's awful. Yes. Good. That's fantastic. You know what? Congratulations. Thank you.
1: But, th- but just to go back to your point in terms of Americans, the same thing happened here. But when BLM happened, it crossed the Atlantic as if the UK was part of the US. So people started talking as if race relations in the UK were exactly the same as they are in, in the US.
0: And these are people in Canada who couldn't find Minneapolis on a map. But they're certain <laughs> that the same thing is happening in Moose Jaw and Regina and Saskatoon. Look, there was a
1: wonderful photograph of a, of a woman... At a BLM protest in London or somewhere, holding a placard saying, disarm the police.
0: Yes, and that's the bobbies with their batons. <laughs> <laughs>